Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Scott Baraban, who is Professor and Chair in Neuroscience Research at UCSF. One of his primary research areas is the causes and treatment of epilepsy. Welcome, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with one of your papers. I know that you have done a lot of work in this area. This paper, Persistent Seizure Control in Epileptic Mice Transplanted with GABA uh, progenitors. Um, you say a significant proportion of the more than 50 million people worldwide currently suffering with epilepsy are resistant to anti-epileptic drugs, AEDs. Mm-hmm. Um, as an alternative to AEDs, novel therapies based on cell transplantation offer an opportunity for long-lasting modification of epileptic circuits. Um, 50 million is a, is a very large number. I wasn't really aware it, it is that uh, um, the incidence rate is that high. Um, mm-hmm. And so in this paper, so you have a mice experiment in this paper? Correct. Um, so the first part is actually a good point that you raised. M- many times people don't know epilepsy is actually more prevalent than Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, other other neurological autism combined. It's one to three percent of the worldwide population. Um, of those patients, the unmet need is that thirty to forty percent of them have remained uncontrolled by available medications or um, surgeries for well over forty years, yeah. and that's despite the the existence of of some very good surgical resection techniques, as well as over 28 FDA-approved anti-epileptic drugs. And so one of the things we've tried to do with our our research program, both with mouse models uh, and also um, zebrafish models that we can talk about a little later, is is to kind of address that unmet need. And one of those uh, we we determined a long time ago, and and we're not the only ones who think this, are that the inhibitory class of, of cells, inhibitory neurons in our brain, which is about 20 to 30% of all our neurons and, and produce a lot of different 
um, kind of modulation of network activity. Those types of inhibitory neurons, which express GABA, which was in the title of that paper, uh, as a primary neurotransmitter, they kind of tamp down on seizure activity naturally. And so a lot of epilepsy cases or conditions, you have dysfunction of those interneurons. And so we reasoned years ago that it made sense if there was a way to put back in those interneurons and they could integrate in the circuit, that that would be therapeutic in a way that drugs couldn't be by modifying the circuit. Yeah. And so that's the premise of that cell therapy approach. It initiated almost 15, 20 years ago with two of my colleagues here at UCSF, uh, Arturo alvarez Bulia, who is an expert in kind of neurogenesis and cell transplantation technique, transplantation, yeah. and John Rubenstein. Um, and I think you've already uh, met with one of his colleagues, uh, Gord Fischel. The two of them are pioneers in identifying where these inhibitory cells come from. And so they had come up with a way in the late 1990s, early 2000s, to harvest these cells as progenitor cells from embryos. So basically taking embryonic mice or fetal tissue, dissecting out a region called the medial ganglionic eminence, which we refer to as MGE. This is kind of like the factory where these inhibitory cells are made, and then putting those in another animal, and they found that they integrated. And so when we first saw this, when I first met them, I immediately wanted to get involved with seeing if these cells could be therapeutic mm -hmm. by transplanting them into mouse models um, that replicate human forms of epilepsy. And there, there are quite a few of those mouse models. They've existed for a long time. And so we chose initially a genetic model in the late 1990s, but later uh, this pilocarpine model, which is basically you give the mouse um, an episode of status epilepticus or uncontrolled seizures. Yeah. And some of those mice eventually develop spontaneous seizures and damage to their hippocampus, which mimics patients with temporal lobe epilepsy. And so that's where, where we applied this. So, so these inhibitory neurons, uh, Scott, every time uh, we think about the brain, um, it, it just, the, the complexity of this is, is, is incredible. It, it's sort of a machine that is balanced on a fine knife edge. So the, these inhibitory neurons have to, have to fire in some uh, precise manner for it to work, right? If it doesn't, so are they are they missing the inhibitory neurons or are, are they firing incorrectly? So actually both. And that's uh, that fine knife's age is how a lot of nice ed knife's edge is how a lot of people describe epilepsy. Um, the balance tipping toward excitation by having less inhibition, either because the cells um, don't fire consistently. Um, one example of that is something called Dravet syndrome, where there's a sodium channel mutation that's specific to inhibitory interneurons, and so causes them to fire less than they're supposed to. And that, of course, throws off that balance. And there are other cases where there's damage to the brain, where those interneurons are selectively lost. And the interesting thing uh, in terms of approaching this from the perspective of interneurons is that interneurons are incredibly uh, diverse and complex. And so while they all might express GABA, the inhibitory transmitter, there are many different flavors, either five or 30, depending how you parse them. And some of them would be therapeutic and some of them actually would be not therapeutic. And so our focus has been on two subclasses that come from the medial ganglionic eminence, specifically parvalbumin and somatostatin uh, subtypes, because those directly impact excitation and kind of control the firing of the excitatory cells. And so it makes sense that they are a good therapeutic kind of window 
into fixing these epilepsies and other conditions as well, like autism spectrum disorders or other things where inhibition balance is important. I don't know how many people are familiar with uh, epilepsy uh, if they haven't seen a patient. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so, the, so the symptom is that they have uncontrolled seizures and it could happen pretty much any time. It's not forecastable in any way. Uh, correct. So the, the biggest problem with a patient with epilepsy is that this kind of electrical storm of activity, which is going to cause a convulsive seizure in most types of epilepsies. There's also a, a different form called absent seizures, which produces the opposite effect, just as kind of staring freezing episode, mm-hmm. is that these events um, occur randomly and, and they're unprovoked and you don't know when they're going to happen. And so when you think of um, a drug trial, a drug therapy, then that approach basically tamps down on this excitability. So the, you put yourself in a point where you're less likely to have one of these unprovoked events. Yeah. But of course, they often break through and those mechanisms, uh, the drug mechanisms are limited. We believe that a cell therapy, which allows you to put cells into the circuit uh, that hopefully will integrate, and that's where we got involved because we were primarily electrophysiology lab at that time. And we wanted to show how this worked. And so when we saw this potential to transplant inhibitory cells, we immediately did physiology experiments where we go and record those cells, uh, which are labeled fluorescently so we can find them. And we showed over many years that they integrate and act exactly like the endogenous inhibitory cells. And so they offer a good therapeutic kind of option because they're doing something that they normally would be doing, which is increasing inhibition in the circuit by talking to and making synapses onto the correct cells. The the AEDs, as you, as you mentioned in the market, uh, they're not very effective. Do we have anything that uh, sort of uh, arrests um, the, the seizure uh, fairly quickly? Like you have a you know severe allergic reaction or something, a kind of histamine. Do we have anything right. uh, in that way? Um, not really. The available drugs um, usually work on to boost inhibitory mechanisms, things like benzodiazepines, which act on the, the receptors where GABA binds to kind of enhance their function. Yeah. And, and uh, sometimes ion channel modulating drugs that affect the f- individual firing of, ne- firing of neurons. The, the problem really is that they have to be administered a dose that's, that's not going to really dramatically affect normal brain functions, which, which require the exact same mechanisms of action. Mm-hmm. And so th- that's kind of the trick with antiepileptic drugs is that they're going to do something globally. Um, the advantage of a cell therapy is we're only going to increase inhibition where we put the cells. And so it's it's way more effective or far more effective than a drug that's globally just going to tamp down on 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 excitability or, or boost inhibition in a global manner. And so in this study, you say our findings demonstrate that the transplanted MGE progenitors enhance our functional GABA mediation inhibition, reduce spontaneous seizure frequency, behavioral deficit in a chronic epileptic animal model more than six months after treatment. So. Uh, has uh, this this procedure has it moved it moved into the clinic? Um, not yet. So obviously, the the stuff we had done in those papers that I, that we published on and within the last decade are on rodent models of epilepsy using rodent cells as donors. So mouse embryos harvested for their MG cells transplanted into mice. To get this to the clinic, there's really two possibilities. Um, 
One, of course, is if, if you could take stem cells and direct them to the right types of inhibitory cells, mimic MG cells, those could be transplanted. So far, that's been unsuccessful, um, largely because, as you mentioned in the beginning, there's a great diversity of interneurons that it's difficult to get precisely the types you want, and also that they maintain this um, migration ability. So the, the reason our, uh, the MG cells work is that you, they'll still migrate in a host brain, in the adult brain, long after the migratory processes should be over because they have that endogenous property to migrate. And so a stem cell would have to both migrate effectively and form the right type of interneuron, which so far they don't. We've taken an alternate path to get to, to hopefully to the clinic, and that's to scale this up to larger animals. And so our approach in recent years mimics what was what happened in the in the early days of heart valve transplants, where people use pig valves into humans before before synthetic valves became uh, available. And so we've started working with groups to obtain pig embryos instead of mouse embryos and do xenotransplants, so between species transplants. Yeah. And this was actually very successful recently for us in that we're able to harvest the MGE from pigs um, and show that they behave identically to what we had known for mouse MGE cells, that is they form the correct types of interneurons and they migrate when you transplant them. Mm. And that, that allowed us actually very recently to fortuitously um, treat uh, in a compassionate use manner, a sea lion here in California. Um, so a little backstory on that. In California, along the coast of the West Coast, we have algae blooms in the summer and the algae accumulates domoic acid, which is an excitotoxin, mm. which kills off, kills off neurons. And it gets in the food chain and the California sea lions ingest this and end up getting a form of temporal lobe epilepsy, similar to the pilocarpine model and similar to humans. This had been well known um, for about a decade here. And these animals usually beach themselves uh, and end up at the rehab rehabil rehabilitation center here in Marin, uh, Marin County, California. And they're what we know is that they have hippocampal damage uh, similar to um, the temporal lobe uh, atrophy, basically the hippocampus shrinks and they lose into neurons and they're untreatable. That is when they've given them these sea lions available anti-epileptic drugs and put them back in the wild, they find most of the time the animals didn't survive. And so it, working with the Marine Mammal Center, we've been trying to use this as, a, as an example of how we could scale up our MG project. And about, I guess it's six months ago now, we were approached by the veterinarians at Six Flags uh, Discovery Park here in California, because they had adopted one of these domoic acid poisoned California uh, sea lions that had epilepsy. Mm -hmm. um, his name, it turned out, um, um, was Cronut. Um, and he had been beached and, and rescued on three separate occasions before he got adopted by Six Flags. And so around September of last year, I got an email from that group uh, they had seen me talk about our MG projects and the pig projects um, at the Marine Mammal Center, and they knew of our work. And they asked us if we would try to save Cronut, who at that time had stopped eating, basically had gone about two months, had lost about 30% of his weight, and was having eight to 10 seizures per week. Yeah. So we um, scrambled, essentially, uh, um, a lot of people to make this happen in a very short time, um, neurosurgeons to, to assist with the the, the surgical approach on a larger animal, um, veterinarians, of course, to, to intubate him and, and get him um, into the operating room, and um, a group that does uh, neuroimaging at Berkeley that we work with, Ben Inglis, um, who had done MRIs on, on these California 
uh, sea lions that have epilepsy. So we knew where we wanted to put the cells. And on October, um, beginning early October, we all got together with Cronut, who traveled down to a veterinary clinic and was uh, intubated, anesthetized, wheeled in for a CT scan, and received the very first injection of pig MG cells into his hippocampus. How did it? Um, so it went, uh, I, I think, amazingly well for a first trial. Um, considering all, uh, all the logistical concerns of bringing all these people together during COVID uh, restrictions. On top of that, we were only allowed a few people in the room with, with Cronut at a time. <laughs> and uh, he survived the surgery, uh, came home, uh, went back to his, his, uh, his home at uh, Six Flags. And we're now almost six months later, he's been completely seizure free and his weight, his weight is back up to normal. He gained back 20 or 25 kilograms since then. Oh, that's incredible. So is there any analog to humans, uh, any sort of neurotoxins in the environment uh, that has, uh, has these types of symptoms at a later time? Mm -hmm. So tobacco acid poisoning is actually uh, pretty rare, but it does happen in humans because it also gets in the food chain with uh, crabs that people eat sometimes, oh. um, and sometimes fish. And occasionally, you'll get a tomoic acid poisoned uh, patient um, who exhibits the same same symptoms as, as the sea lions. It's pretty rare um, because you're not necessarily going to eat those foods that would concentrate the tomoic acid uh, as the sea lion might. Yeah, but because the pathology of the sea lion, which was well um, studied by a colleague of mine at Stanford. Um, Paul Buckmaster, um, is very similar to, to humans with temporal lobe epilepsy. It's actually a pretty good, in my opinion, predictor of how this might apply um, to humans. Mm. So, so the epileptic cases that we see around the world, 50 million, as you mentioned, uh, so that is, that is largely genetic? Uh, it's a mix. So epilepsy is, is a kind of a spectrum of um, diseases. Uh, including uh, brain injuries, infections, uh, febrile seizures early in life, uh, which are basically acquired, form of acquired forms of epilepsy, and then uh, all the way down to genetic single gene mutations. And there's actually now about 20 or 30% of those patients, of all epilepsy patients, have a single gene mutation. And there's roughly, depending what you look at, between 40 and 100 different single gene mutations that that contribute to specific epilepsy syndromes, largely rare rare genetic epilepsies. Mm. And so of those patients across both types, acquired or genetic, though genetic usually worse, there's that's where that 30 or 40% untreatable comes from. Mm. And, and largely really on the genetic side because drugs and treatments have never been designed specifically for those genetic, genetic forms of epilepsy. Right. Right. Uh, you have another paper here. You mentioned that uh, Darvey syndrome, a catastrophic childhood epilepsy with early onset seizures, delayed language and motor development disturbances, anxiety-like behavior. And again, un untreated largely, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so um, are, we, are we making some progress there? Actually, uh, amazingly, yes. So about 10 years ago, I'd say there was very little research or progress in these rare genetic forms of epilepsy. Uh, the first part of that is many of them had not yet been identified. Uh, and the second part of that is, was there was very little basic research on them because there weren't not available animal models um, to work on. So we took this approach and now 
kind of, I guess, spanning my lab's other spectrum from sea lions and mice, now going in the other direction of smaller animals, we decided to adapt um, zebrafish as a model system mm -hmm. to study these genetic forms of epilepsy. And the reason we did that is that zebrafish, first of all, are vertebrates and have a very similar genetic homology to humans, yeah. about 80, 82% actually for human, human uh, disease genes. Um, and they're large enough and have a, a number of features, in, in, including the fact that you get hundreds of larvae anytime you breed two zebrafish mm -hmm. to do high throughput kind of research and to genetically modify them. So we developed um, genetic models for these rare, rare human genes that emerged. We began with Dravet syndrome, which is one of the most common genetic forms of epilepsy. It's about one in 27,000. It's associated, again, with a sodium channel. Uh, again, the sodium channel is on inhibitory cells, so something my laboratory was already interested in. And these patients, at the time, we started, had no available treatments that were approved for Dravet syndrome. And so we developed a zebrafish model that had the same exact genetic mutation, and we found, using techniques we had developed over the years to record both behaviors and electrical events in larval zebrafish, that they had spontaneous seizures, so unprovoked spontaneous seizures otherwise known as, uh, or defined as epilepsy. Once we had that fish in hand, or that model in hand, or those assays in hand, we developed an, a series of high-throughput phenotype-based screening assays. So most drug discovery is based on thinking of a rational kind of design of what channel or, or receptor you might want to modify. And we, we and then trying to modify, find a drug that modifies that, that kind of channel, say. We took the opposite approach, which is called phenotype-based screening. Basically, the animal has a seizure, and we want to find a drug that stops it from seizing. Mm -hmm. and, and it's completely unbiased uh, and, and, in a way, agnostic to mechanism. And the way it's set up is we're able to then screen commercially available libraries blindly and just look for drugs at work. And then once we find those drugs at work, we can backtrack and figure out what they are and figure out mechanism. Yeah. From that screening effort, which now we've done for about six or seven years now and screened over 3,500 drugs, we actually found a re what we call a repurposed drug. So an FDA-approved drug that was, that was already in the market for some other indication and now worked on in our larval zebrafish model of Dravet syndrome. And the drug was called Clemazole. Yeah. Clemazole was a first-generation antihistamine used in the 1950s and then discontinued <laughs> as other drug, drugs became available. But it turned out Clemazole was a very effective suppressor of spontaneous seizures in our Dravet syndrome model. Mm. We've subsequently gone on to find similar, uh, find out the mechanism of action for Clemazole, which turned out had nothing to do with antihistamines, but had to do with serotonin receptors. Yeah. And have come up with six more drugs, uh, a few repurposed and a few novel compounds that do the same thing. Luckily, because we were looking at repurposed drugs, we we're able to get compassionate use data, to, similar to the sea lion story, in patients with the Dravet syndrome who agreed to take one of the drugs we found in zebrafish, uh, five, five children who had Dravet syndrome. And remarkably, they also showed the same suppression of their spontaneous seizures. And so this is the first of its kind, basically aquarium to bedside approach, where we, we, didn't, we never did an experiment on mice. We never did an experiment in human stem cells or anything else. We found the drugs in zebrafish. The drugs were safe because the FDA had already approved them. Yeah. And then we showed that they worked in people with epilepsy. Yeah, this sounds like a very interesting approach. So if you can replicate the issue in a model, you can then try a variety of already approved drugs for other indications. And if you, can, if you get something, 
then you can go back and look for uh, look for the mechanism. It seems like you found the mechanism too, right? It is. Uh, yep. Yeah, that's exactly correct. So once we had the drug, um, we were able to kind of back, you know, back engineer it, reverse engineer it, and figure out what the drug bound to, and then screen for more drugs that had a similar mechanism of action, and then recheck what those drugs bound to, and narrowed it down to a serotonin two B serotonin two B receptor, um, which seemed to be the common mechanism for all the drugs that we found as well as uh, to an emerging treatment that came out around the same time called fenfluramine, which we had, we had discovered in zebrafish and independently was commercially being developed um, as a serotonin reuptake blocker, so also increasing serotonin signaling. And they all seem to work through a 2B receptor. Fenfluramine was actually recently approved as one of the first drugs um, by the FDA for Dravet syndrome, and Clemazole and the other drugs that we've developed are currently in clinical trials. Yeah. Um... Could you, uh, since Clemazole has been around for a long time, could you just do some sort of a bridging uh, study and and approve it or no? We, we were hoping that, um, and that, that was kind of the intention when we discovered it. But it turned out um, the company that, that manufactured Clemazole in the 50s no longer existed. <laughs> yeah. That um, the FDA approval of drugs in the 1950s was not as strict as it is now. So that there wasn't actually a lot of... Um, safety data that the FDA looks for. Yeah. And, and and more importantly than that, no one in the world was manufacturing Clemazole anymore. So we had to actually spin out a company, uh, Epigenics Therapeutics, to kind of address all of those, those needs to bring this to the market. So basically formulate the drug, um, go to the FDA, get all the approvals, do all the preclinical and clinical safety data, and then move forward with clinical trials. Yeah. So um, can you go back and, and, and perhaps even improve the molecule? Uh, if, since you know the mechanism now, you could, you could presumably get a better chemistry. A great question. And, and that's exactly what we set out to do in a paper we published a few years ago in uh, uh, Brain Communications, I think, or Frontiers. I forget what journal, sorry. Um, where we worked with medicinal chemists here at UCSF, and we manufactured... 28 derivatives of clemazole and then rescreen them and we actually developed three drugs uh, out of that called novel chem chemical entities that are potentially better than clemazole um, and so though that kind of development to just take a, a little side into how drug development works uh, for a novel chem chemical entity which entity which might be a better drug than the original like you said, uh, the issue is that it has to go through all the initial screening and and, and safety steps um, that that would exist by the FDA, which it, which it has never undergone. So a repurposed drug has some of that data, but for an NCE, it's a it's a longer path. So we're in the process of kind of getting that data ready for the FDA, um, so we can approach the uh, them later to do clinical trials. But it's, it's usually a couple of years behind a repurposed drug. Yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating approach. You have another paper uh, which just came out or just coming out, uh, and you say here uh, it's about uh, the epilepsy zebrafish project, as you say. Mm -hmm. um, we used CRISPR-Cas9 to generate 40 single-gene mutant zebrafish lines representing catastrophic change. What I was wondering, uh, Scott, is if, if this is sort of a, a platform technology could you develop uh, these things for other, uh, these things meaning other zebrafish models that you could attempt along the same way for other CNS diseases? 
Yeah, we think so. So the Epilepsy Zebra Fish Project, which is uh, about to be published, was taking this approach and advances in CRISPR technology, which are which are well known, which are very efficient for making single gene mutations, and our assays for finding fish that have seizures, and doing it at a large scale. So you're correct. We took 40 known human epilepsy genes, made a zebra fish line for all 40 of those, screened larvae. Um, screened 100 larvae per line um, with our electrophysiology recording, so looking for spontaneous seizures, screened over 4,000 zebrafish from that, and came up with now eight or or nine new models that would allow us to do additional rounds of drug therapy or, or other types of development as well. And so each of these represents a specific human condition. Some are rare, uh, some are very rare, um, but the approach can be broadly used for at least in the epilepsy field. And we're hoping for other types of um, uh, genetic disorders that are present in in the pediatric population, keeping in mind larvae are only a few days old and so don't really represent the adult nervous system that well and are more attuned to a developing nervous system. But autism spectrum disorder, which has an overlap with epilepsy, about 30% of those single gene mutations, those patients also have have epilepsy. We're hoping to develop that line of uh, research as well. Of course, we'd have to come up with an assay that convinced us the fish were exhibiting some form of autistic behavior. But you can imagine uh, this is possible for autism and epilepsy and, and epilepsy genes and a wide variety of genetic diseases that you might see in the pediatric population. Mm. Uh, so, so what do you say in this case, Scott? Uh, clearly, the zebrafish model is more predictive um, of what could happen in the human uh, compared to, let's say, mice model. Uh, if mm-hmm. case, uh, could this be the case for other other diseases too? Could we use zebrafish uh, as a model for other other diseases, completely different types of diseases? Um, yeah, twofold. So obviously, in our mouse to fish comparison um, so far has focused on Dravet syndrome, where there are mice and there are fish. Yeah. And, and our conclusion, like like you stated, was that if you look at the pharmacology and the drugs that the mouse models predict, they're not very accurate. That is, they don't they don't actually predict drugs that patients with Dravet syndrome patients have, whereas the zebrafish do. And so the predicted validity of, of the fish models was a little bit better for that particular readout. We believe that that might be the case for a lot of uh, the epilepsy, uh, rare epilepsy models that we have, largely because there are, in many cases, there are not that many mice, mouse models. And also because to, to do what we do in a fish in a mouse model could take many more years. You know, we could, we could screen 100 fish at a time and find out and monitor their spontaneous seizures, basically in an hour or a couple hours. To do that in a mouse population with EEG could take months to years. And so not to dismiss mice as not being recapitulating, they're just not easy to do drug discovery on at that throughput. Yeah. And when I think of other diseases, and I get this question a lot, I, like I said, I think more of genetic forms of disease where there's a clear phenotype early in development. Yeah. Uh, going back to what I said earlier, because the, the advantage of zebrafish or zebrafish approach for drug discovery, at least, is that it's a phenotype-based screening. Um, you have to be able to see some form of the disease uh, in a larval zebrafish. Um, and within the first, you know, we're looking at fish five or six days after they're hatched. Yeah. And so Alzheimer's, you could think, or Parkinson's, those are degenerative neurodegenerative diseases. They would be a lot harder to model mm-hmm. in, in a larval zebrafish. Mm-hmm. But 
there could be you know different types of developmental problems, you know, not just restricted to the central nervous system, but other diseases that you see early in childhood, that if they have a, a strict genetic cause, one gene type of loss of function mutation, yeah. I think they could be they could be modeled in zebrafish. And I think the only thing really holding back that kind of approach is that the um, kind of pharma industry has not yet really seen too many of these types of models, these approaches come forward from zebrafish because they're pretty pretty recent. And so I think once some of these drugs, either from us or Leonard Zahn's group at Harvard does something similar in zebrafish, get into the market, I think the bigger pharmaceutical companies will realize the value of zebrafish modeling for drug discovery. Um, and so there's kind of a wait and see type of thing, I think, from their perspective. <laughs> but But certainly the tools, I mean, we worked We've been working with fish for many years. Many of the same things we can do in mice, we can now do in zebrafish. So that they have a number of you know really good advantages for this type of drug discovery, or even other therapies. You know, if you think of gene therapies or other things you want to test. Right. Yeah, it's groundbreaking, and and so obviously the uh, as you're going through now with FDA, there is a little bit of a learning curve there too, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Absolutely. Um, as an academic, um, you know, be a professor at the university for my entire career, learning how uh, the FDA works and how drugs get commercialized is, is enlightening. But it's also a long process of steps that, you know, you don't normally know that much about when you're doing the basic science uh, discovery stuff. Yeah, yeah. COVID uh, turned <laughs> the whole process upside down. Uh, yep. <laughs> yep. And hope and hopefully you know brought brought to attention you know the, the value that you know these scientific discoveries could have in a very short time you know it, it, if people believe in them and invest in them um, I mean science can has a lot of these tools they're just not always brought to the commercial level where they they impact patients yeah and I think I think you are going through this too uh, much of this innovation is sort of at the boundaries right so it's not the typical high throughput screening. Uh, there is some, you know, sort of data analytics, uh, perhaps even artificial intelligence applications here. And so the products that might come through these types of processes are quite different from what happens in a typical pharmaceutical company. Um, and so I wondered, um, I, I think it's going to take some time, but, but you know, the, the whole sequence being different may require sort of a different regulatory regime uh, for it to work too. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's kind of when you're at the edges of these types of things, um, it takes a while to to get to the point where they are both accepted and recognized as, as different types of problems for the FDA. My, my view, whether it's our cell therapies with, with the sea lions or, or the drugs we discover in zebrafish is that both of those are on the edges of what the FDA normally approves. And so they don't really necessarily, you know, get approached by, you know, a proof or principle in a sea lion. That's a good example. You know, if we went to the FDA and said, hey, we cured the sea lion potentially by, by transplanting pig cells. Um, it's unclear what their process would be because that's not a drug discovery. And it's not, it's not a device therapy that they're used to approving. Uh, and the same thing we found out with the zebrafish. When I went, when I've, you know, been approached or went to the EMA, the European Union um, Agency, or the FDA to, to kind of present our case of why we wanted to do clinical trials. We had to explain why we use zebrafish, of course, and set up, set the stage of all the work we had done for you know well over a decade to get to the point where we were where we were ready to approach them with a drug. And so I found that once they were informed and provided all this information, 
the pathway was pretty clear. Yeah. But before that, there was a lot of resistance, uh, largely, like you said, because it's on the edges of what is considered a normal path to therapy development. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue is obviously the, the, the existing therapies are not very really effective. And so you have to think about compatible use and, and those mm -hmm. too, right? Um, right. And and that's that's the premise. I mean, we're not approaching trying to find treatments for things where people are treatable. Uh, we're trying to find you know, treatments for those 30% of patients who have no options. Um, and I think for me, that's always been the target of my lab and my research is these populations where there really isn't a lot of research um, on, on how to help them. Um, so taking that approach and then personalizing it. Obviously, the, the zebra fish allow us a form of personalized medicine because we could target a specific gene family foundation or a specific gene you know, that, that a small group of patients might have, but it's worthwhile for us to kind of make that model and study it because it's possible in zebrafish and it wouldn't be possible in some other species. Yeah, it's a tough disease you know, from a quality of life perspective. Mm -hmm. um, since you have no predictability and when it sets in, um, you know, you're, you're basically um, rendered unable to do anything else, um, you know, so it, it has a lot of quality of life issues uh, associated with it as well. Indeed. And a lot of times when I do meet patients, that's one of the things they talk about more than anything. You know, they say, we know we have seizures and we have some drugs that are hard to control. But, you know, my ch children have, you know, cognitive problems or behavioral problems or developmental problems. And, and they say, you know, even if you could just treat those, you know, those comorbidities, yeah. we, would be we would be happy with a new treatment. Um, so that definitely is the case. It, it's, it's a quality of life in addition to the risk and, and uncertainty of having the seizures themselves. Mm. We'll take a quick break, Scott. When we come back, mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk about your working paper. Uh, I, I guess it's a working paper on interneurons. Oh, okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back, Scott. Um, we, we were talking about epilepsy, um, a, a disease that is uh, reasonably prevalent. 50 million people around the world uh, suffer from it. Uh, and your lab at UCSF uh, is taking a very interesting approach to it um, using a model from uh, a zebra fish based model and doing uh, some genetic manipulation on zebrafish to, uh, to, to show um, epilepsy-like uh, like disease, uh, and then using actually approved uh, drugs uh, to try to test if we can actually seize the, um, the, the issue. Uh, and it seems like you have had some good successes uh, in that area. Um, you have another paper that just came out last week interneuron origins in the embryonic prosine medial ganglionic eminence. Um, so uh, uh, before we get into this, so you say interneurons contribute to the complexity of 20 neural circuits and maintenance of normal brain function. Uh, what, what exactly are interneurons? So interneurons are one of two 
uh, major classes of neurons that we have in our brain. 80% uh, of our neurons are what are considered excitatory neurons that uh, have a neurotransmitter called glutamate, and, and they regulate uh, most of our normal functions. And the tuning of these cells and the precise timing of when they fire and when they work is controlled by the other 20% of neurons in our brain called interneurons. And so basically they make synapses at various uh, points in the circuit to control the flow of information, uh, to put it simply. And they do this by releasing uh, GABA, which is an inhibitory uh, transmitter that hyperpolarizes a neuron or brings it further away from its firing potential. The interesting thing about interneurons, even though they only make up 20% of the neurons in our brain, they are incredibly diverse. And so there are, depending how you, whether you're what's called a parser or a lumper, there are either five different types of interneurons or, or as many as 30 different types of interneurons. And this is a very active kind of uh, field of research in neuroscience, parsing what these different inhibitory uh, neurons do in the brain. But what we do know from many years of this research is that they control and, and modulate uh, these circuits that allow us to do just about all the things you, you think of that the brain does for processing of information. Yeah. And, and not surprisingly then, um, from a translational or disease-based perspective, when you interfere with the function of these neurons, and depending which ones and in which areas of the nervous system you're doing this, there's a variety of neurological disorders that are associated with that. Epilepsy is one of the most prominent or most obvious because of the loss of inhibition allows for these uh, excitatory events, uh, seizure events, uncontrolled seizure events to occur. But you also see deficits in how in inhibitory neurons function or integrate in things like autism or schizophrenia or Alzheimer's disease as well. Are they implicated in things like ADHD as well? Um, yes and, and no. So um, figuring out uh, the, the spectrum uh, of, of where inhibitory neurons are dysfunctional usually starts with, like I said, epilepsy because it's easier because you lose neurons. So you, so you can see a neuron, an interneuron, uh, you know, the density decreases in a certain area of the brain. Yeah. When you get to the other spectrum of their, their abilities or their functions changing um, um, or being altered in some smaller way, it's a little harder to directly implicate that with the disease uh, um, kind of modality, mm. partly, partly because it's a system that's um, dynamic in the sense that once you lose maybe some level of inhibitory function in, in, at one point in development, in one area of the brain, you start to have compensatory mechanisms to bring it back. Um, so when you don't specifically lose the neuron, you know, where it's, you can't find it, it's direct implication by looking at, you know, tissue, say from patients that have a, a specific CNS disorder post hoc um, is harder to, to kind of directly tie those together. Mouse models, of course, have filled in a lot of this gap. There's lots of uh, different examples of modification and changing uh, the function or the integration of different subclasses of inhibitory cells and showing how that produces a behavior that fits with, say, an autistic-like behavior or schizophrenic-like behavior, et cetera. And so that's where the, the, the causality is implied. But again, for, for human diseases, it's a little harder to directly kind of sometimes tie them together. It's a developmental issue. So as the as brain uh, develops, uh, this deficiency, if it exists, it should show up fairly fairly early? Right. So so depending how you have it, interneuron deficit, um, but let's take the case of, say, something called uh, lysencephaly, which, uh, or 
migration disorders. Basically, in those cases, early in development, the interneurons might have a hard time getting to where, where they're supposed to go uh, during the early phases of development. And so they might arrive late, for example, uh, or they might arrive in fewer numbers or make fewer connections. That would occur early in neurodevelopment, you know, while interneurons are kind of migrating and integrating in the first couple of months of birth, that it might produce some immediate changes in how the circuit works, which could lead to a, to a neurological condition, or in many cases, there's some adaptation, like I said, by the host, by the, by the brain, and uh, it's immediately kind of corrected in a sense where the, there's really not a, a terrible deficit later. And so it's kind of a moving target um, uh, of how inhibition is balanced. And it's it's tightly balanced because you, you don't want to have kind of lose, lose this control. But in genetic forms or developmental forms of disease, where, where I kind of think the most about this, you do see this as an early problem. So autism spectrum disorder or rare genetic epilepsies, for example, that have inhibition defects, those can occur within the first few years of life. So if I understand this correctly, Scott, uh, so they are produced somewhere and they migrate to wherever they need to go according to some sort of master program. And if they don't show up at the right time, at the right place, uh, it results in some deficiencies. Is that the way to think about it? Yeah, that, that's that's exactly how I would think about it. They, they're born in uh, re, uh, regions of the embryo uh, that are that transiently appear before the cells start to migrate out. These are called the ganglionic eminences. Um, you can find them in all species up through uh, humans, and they have similar characteristics. They migrate out of those regions using what's called tangential migration. So basically, they could migrate in chains, kind of crawling over each other to get to their final locations in cortex or hippocampus or striatum. And depending which of those ganglionic eminence regions they arise from determines um, the type of interneuron you'd have. And so they have uh, a genetic code, basically, that uh, based on where they're born, that informs their direction and their migration and, and their differentiation into specific subtypes. So if you to get technical, if you look at like the MGE, the medial region of the ganglionic eminence, you get certain types of interneurons from there. If you go to the caudal region, you get different types of interneurons from that region. Yeah, this may not be the right word, Scott, but, but um, so uh, there, there is a production problem and then there is a transmission problem. And then when it arrives, it has to be uh, sort of at the right place at the right time. And so you could have deficiencies in any one of these things, right? So uh, most of the things that we see, is it related to a production or, or transmission? Mm, I don't know if there's a, a prevailing kind of um, answer to that. I, 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 there are, I'd say there are, you can have deficits in any one of those things. You can get fewer interneurons produced. Yeah. You can have um, fewer interneurons migrate or, or, or migrate very slowly, or you can have fewer interneurons actually integrated to the circuit once they get there. And, and that's kind of the spectrum of neurological diseases you might get as well. Because again, inhibition is important throughout the nervous system. So depending where this deficit might be, you might have you know epilepsy, say, versus autism. Yeah. Um, and that that's the kind of key thing you know, the, the basic neuroscience labs that study interneuron origins 
that's what they're trying to figure out. Uh, two things, you know, where do these interneurons come from? How do you get these different diverse types and, and so much diversity? And potentially, what are, what's the molecular code that tells you how to make one of these interneurons potentially? Yeah. Is, uh, is early intervention, um, I guess it depends on what you can do, but if there is some intervention that you can do early, will that make it easier? We tend to think earlier would be better um, because the brain's a little more plastic early in development. That That is its ability to kind of adapt and change synapses and change function is greatest in, in uh, the developing brain. If you think of, for example, um, speaking a foreign language, you know, children growing up in a household with two languages at early in development and exposed from birth are much more adept at learning both languages than if you or I started to, to say, well, we're going to learn two languages now as adults. Right. And that's because the, the plasticity of the early nervous system is much greater. Yeah, so, so the, the intervention, um, is there a transplantation-based intervention uh, if you were to pick it up early? Right. So, so we found, at least with, with interneurons, which what we use for our, trans, for our transplantation-based cell therapies, these inhibitory MG progenitor cells, that if we transplant progenitor cells early into a mouse brain, say one or two days after birth, we can get a much greater integration and density of those cells later and survival. Um, we can do this in adults as well, but it's not as efficient and effective as, as it is in the younger animals. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, it's tough to speculate, but if, if uh, this were to move into the clinic and, and, and further, um, would we get into a situation that we identify a deficiency, perhaps even before birth, and, uh, and, and intervene um, right after birth? Uh, do, do you think the, uh, we will go in that direction or, or it's still tough to say at this point? Um, I think that's actually leaning that way. If, if I think of, you know, if we talk about Dravet syndrome again, which, which is a sodium channel mutation that's very severe. It, it's there at birth. And those children develop seizures and other problems within the first two years of life, sometimes hundreds of seizures a day. Mm. There's already um, approaches uh, more on the gene therapy side so far than the cell therapy side where patients are probably willing to take, take a gene therapy or cell therapy approach very early in those child's development um, with the hope that it's going to cure some of these problems or fix these problems. And, and largely because the patients and uh, the families that we talk to or I talk to um, feel that those hundreds of seizures, those first couple of years of life, dramatically change yeah. the course of, the, of that child's life. And, and, and regardless of the, you know, the risk that's going to involve, be involved with a cell or gene therapy early is probably worth it in the long run. If you, can, if you can fix some of those problems before they kind of damage the brain and change the course of development for that child. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this before, the quality of life issues and you know, obviously, if you have something like epilepsy, for example, your education suffers and, and all sorts of other things. So, yeah, it, it is, um, it's a tough disease to, uh, to deal with. So, so in conclusion, Scott, if you, I know that you, your lab is doing a lot of work in this area. You have the zebra fish uh, model that, um, that could go in a lot of different directions, possibly in the future. Um, if you look forward 
five five years, ten years, uh, Scott. Where do you think um, you will be uh, in these types of these types of approaches and therapies? That's always a great question. I, I like to actually tell my trainees that I don't know what we'll do in five or ten years because yeah. um, we'll be inf- inf- I'll be influenced by something I see at that time, which is kind of how we got, got into these two directions in the first yeah. place. Yeah, but but, but I, I can certainly say you know. Um, speculate that uh, on, uh, for either one for, for the zebrafish projects. Now that we've made all these uh, lines that represent you know forty different uh, genetic forms of disease, we're hoping to, to do two things. Obviously, do more drug discovery or therapy development um, as as, a, as an obvious goal. But we also want to use them to study basic mechanisms of how these circuits end up generating these diseases uh, phenotypes in the first place. Our hope with the zebrafish project. Um, to be magnanimous, we hope, is that we would give away a lot of these fish to other academic labs because that would that would be the quickest way to advance the field. Uh, we're only one lab working on one fish, one or one or two fish at a time. So if we can distribute these more broad, broadly, our hope and share that data, kind of an open source community, that would be where I'd like to see the zebrafish projects in the next five to ten years. Yeah. On on the cell therapy. We definitely uh, are pursuing this idea that you know pig pig embryos are our step toward doing larger species, hopefully humans. I can't say when we would you know get close to humans, but I can certainly say we've made enough progress um, er- already to pursue more sea lion experiments and to try some more compassionate use trials, hopefully in the next five to ten years, to really optimize this therapy um, on its way, to, hopefully to the clinic someday. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, really important work. Um, thanks so much for spending time with me, Scott. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. It was fun. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.